We're starting a brand new book today. It's a great book. It's a, great, it's a book that's going to teach us about who Jesus Christ is and what he's done on the cross. Many scholars believe that Colossians, along with the book of John, are the two best books in the Bible about the deity of Christ and who Christ is. Uh, and I, I would affirm that. We're going to be looking at this week the results of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives. And then we're going to see also Paul's prayer. Paul's prayer for the Colossians. But what we're going to see next week, don't miss next week, what we're going to see next week is we're going to actually see who Jesus Christ is. Very important questions Colossians is answering as we go through this book. Who is Jesus Christ and what has he done in dying on the cross for our sins? And these are important questions because the church in Colossae was started not by Paul but by a guy by the name of Epaphras. little background on this. Hey, before we get into it though, almost forgot, let's stand up. Let's stand up. Come on. Come on, church. Stand up. And we've got to do our affirmation of faith, affirmation about what we believe about this book right here, the Bible, the Word of God. This primes the pump for us to receive God's Word here this morning. So repeat after you. If you have your Bible, lift it up. If you don't have your Bible, just raise your voice and say along with us what we believe about this book right here. It says this, this Bible is the inspired and infallible Word of God. It has the power to train me in righteousness. I will receive God's Word today with humility and respect. My ears are open, my mind is alert, my heart is receptive to God's word. May this time in God's word equip me to love God, love people, and be a part of the mission of each one, reach one, in Jesus' name and all God's church set. Amen. 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 May that be our prayer, that we receive with humility what God wants to speak to each one of us today. So Colossians, a little background, let's get into it a little bit. Before we get into our scripture in Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, let's talk about what is Colossae. Colossae was a city 100 miles east of Ephesus. Paul had never been to Colossae, but he preached for three years in the city of Ephesus, which is an Asian minor, present-day Turkey. And as he preached there, a great church was started in Ephesus. It was the flagship church of the Roman Empire. It was the church that uh, great pastors came through and taught at, like Apollos, and then Timothy later on, and then the Apostle John taught there also. So it was a church that was known for biblical teaching, and here's what happened. As Paul discipled in the school of Tyrannus and he started the church there, there was a guy by the name of Epaphras, who we're going to see here in this first chapter, who became a disciple, got saved. And then he went 100 miles east, probably to his hometown, Colossae, and he started a church there. And a great church got started by Epaphras. Now, Epaphras is now visiting Paul in prison in Rome. Paul wrote four prison epistles from his cell in Rome, from his house arrest in, in Rome. He wrote the book of Philippians, which we just studied. He wrote the book of, of Ephesians. He wrote Philemon. And then he also wrote Colossians. And as he wrote this book, uh, Tychicus, who's mentioned in this epistle also, brought the book back to the city of Colossae, which is 100 miles uh, east uh, in a valley uh, from Ephesus. Now, it's interesting because uh, Paul uh, got good news about the church from, uh, from uh, Epaphras. He said it was a great church, great things were happening, people were getting saved, people were getting discipled. But also, Epaphras brought news back to Paul. There was some false teaching infiltrating the church. There was false teachers that were known as Gnostics who denied the deity of Christ. They had the wrong Christology. They didn't have the right theology about Jesus Christ. They even said that Jesus Christ, the Gnostics said that Jesus Christ didn't even come in the flesh. Now we know that's heresy because what does John 1.14 say? The word became flesh 
and he dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glory of only from, uh, begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. But there's also legalists that were coming into the church. And these legalists were saying, hey, you've got to follow the law. You've got to go back to the ceremonial law, the civil law of the Old Testament. You've got to be circumcised. Ouch. Uh, you had, <laughs> it was a barrier to the gospel because they were adding to grace. And they were saying grace plus legalism will save you. Now, this is an important book for us, too, because you know what? We're living in a culture today. We're living in a, a, a United States today that has a lot of confusion about who Christ is and what Christ ultimately has done on the cross. We have, we have Gnostics in our culture, too, that are just New Agers that are just com completely messing up who Christ is. We even have churches that are messing up right now on who Christ is. And they're saying things like that Christ only had the authority that we have and only had the power that we have here in this lifetime. Baloney, I, I haven't, uh, you know, look at what Christ did, walking on water, raising from the dead, raising himself from the dead. Don't ever say that we're on the same power as Jesus Christ and our power authority. He said all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. And listen, there's a lot of confusion about Christ and what he's done on the cross in our culture today too. People adding to the gospel also. I was reading this week an article from Charisma Magazine that talked about American Christianity. And it was interesting to me because it, it talked about just the illiteracy of the Bible here in the United States, not in Muslim countries, here. And it said uh, in this article in Charisma Magazine, there was a poll taken, and 37% uh, it said of American citizens go to church on a regular basis. I have a hard time believing that. Maybe 37% say they do, but 37% attend church on a regular basis. 38% of Americans polled said they were Bible-believing Christians, but one half of Americans don't know who preached the Sermon on the Mount. Half of America doesn't know, even know who preached the Sermon on the Mount. Hello, Jesus did. And then the second thing that was interesting to me, half of America, if they're asked, what are the first four books of the New Testament, what are they? Half of America didn't know the answer to that question. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so we're, we're in a culture that needs the book of Colossians. We're in a church culture that needs the book of Colossians. And I'm so grateful that here at Calvary Chapel, you stick around here, you're going to get in the Word, you're going to learn the Word, you're going to be discipled in the Word, because that's so important. And so what we're studying here in Colossians is very important stuff. Who Jesus is and what he has done. Verse 18 of this chapter kind of highlights uh, what, what Colossians is all about. It says this, He, Jesus, is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. That's what Jesus is. He's first place in everything. And then again, next week, we're going to see his deity also. But this week, we're going to be studying the results of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Colossians' lives and it should be the results of Jesus Christ in our faith in Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. What, what's changed if you've received the gospel of Jesus Christ? We're going to see that in detail here in Colossians 1, 1 through 12. Uh, so Colossians 1, verse 1, if you're there, say amen. All right, let's go. You ready, church? First of all, we get the introduction. Colossians 1, verse 1. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, first of all, notice the letter starts with Paul. In that culture, they had scrolls. In our culture, we say, dear so-and-so, and then we say, uh, sincerely, whatever, at the end of the letter. But in that culture, opening the scroll, you need to know who it was from. And as you open the scroll, first name of the person who it was from. It's from Paul. 
And notice how Paul describes himself. He's an apostle, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, apostle, very significant office in the New Testament church. Apostles had the authority of Jesus Christ to teach the word and to even write the word. Most of the New Testament was written by apostles. Acts 2.42 says the New Testament church continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. There was an apostolic authority, and Paul said, I'm right there with apostolic authority. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, you know why that's important? It's because Paul's going to be addressing false teaching, and he's starting the letter saying, I have the apostolic authority to correct this false teaching that's infiltrating your church. Notice, he's an apostle by the will of God. And also it says about Paul that he's with Timothy, our brother. That was his protege. That was his right-hand man. That was the one that he was discipling to take over and succeed him and pastor churches that he had started. And then to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. Now, interesting, 68 times in the New Testament, Christians are called saints. How many times in the New Testament are Christians called Christians in the New Testament? Anybody, Anybody know? Three times. So the common name for Christians in the New Testament wasn't Christians. It was saints, 68 times. Now, the church has messed up what saints are, too. Now, the Catholic Church has venerated people that have done all these great works of service, and that's the saint. And then you're memorialized by a statue or something like that. That's not what saint means. Saint, for Christian, means this. Holy ones that are called out by God and set apart for him by special purposes for God. If you're a saint, you're called out by God to be holy and set apart for his purposes. I like that. Saints, we're all saints. Now, does that mean we're perfect? No. Does that mean we're venerated above other people? No. We're all a bunch of sinners saved by God's grace. But by God's grace, we're now holy through the holiness of Christ imparted to us, and we have special purposes, purposes for our lives. So we have a destiny, there's a plan. God says, I know the plans I have for you for welfare, not for calamity, for a future and a hope. God's got a purpose for your life. That's why he saved you, because you're a saint. And if you're not a saint, you're an eight. And become a saint, so you ain't an eight. Because as soon as you receive Christ, you become a saint. But notice also, you're a faithful brethren. Interesting, or you could say about ladies, you're a faithful sister. You know what that means? means we're family. It means that if you've entered into the relationship with Jesus Christ through faith by the gospel, what you are is you are brothers and sisters in Christ with everybody around you. Look around a little bit. That's a brother or sister sitting next to you. That's a family member. You know what that means? That means we're supposed to have each other's back. We're supposed to treat each other as family. We're supposed to say, hey, if we have issues with one another, we're supposed to deal with it, forgive each other, go on and keep being family. This thing we got going in the culture of church hopping where as soon as you get upset with somebody in the church, you're jetting out of there, that's not biblical at all. First century church only had one church and they had to deal with each other, work it out, and as Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Jesus said if you have an issue with a brother, get all away from the altar and get it right with a brother because we're family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus said about this in, in the Gospel of Mark, talking about our familial relationship that we have with one another. Mark chapter 3, 35 says, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Amen? We're, we're family. And so enough 
enough of the thing of us not treating each other as family. We should love each other. We're going to see that in just a couple minutes, the importance of familial relationships here within the body of Christ because we're family. Faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Notice it says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. That's a typical Pauline greeting. He starts most of his letters, grace to you and peace. Now, question, where is grace and peace found according to that verse? From God our Father. There's no other source. In other, other epistles, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. He adds Lord Jesus Christ because you ain't, you ain't going to find grace and peace anywhere besides God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word grace is undeserved merit and favor from God. Peace, Arion, is rest for soul, serenity of soul. And you know what? The theme song of this world that's around us is I can't get no Boy, I'm quoting the Rolling Stones in my message. Ooh, <laughs> lightning bolts. But that's the theme song of the world, right? I can't get no satisfaction. But when we find Christ, and Christ finds us, woo, grace, amazing grace, God's favor. And then peace, rest for soul, serenity of soul, because Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary, heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you, you'll find rest for your souls. There's no other source for grace and peace than God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't listen to the empty cisterns of the world that are saying you'll find satisfaction in these other things. You never will. Rest, peace, grace, peace, shalom, it's found in the Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father. Can I get an amen to that from that church? Grace and peace. Go to the right source. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And then Paul goes on in Colossians, and he gets into the gospel part now. What are the results of the gospel in our lives? Verse 3. We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. The first result of the gospel in the Colossians' life was faith. Faith. Now what's Faith. Hebrews 11.1, faith is an assurance of things hoped for. It's a conviction, things not yet seen. Faith, according to Hebrews 11.6, without faith it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. He's a rewarder of those who seek him. Faith is this ability to believe in a God that you can't see and a Savior that is invisible, but you trust him and you believe in him. That's faith. I love what Peter said about faith. 1 Peter 1, 7 through 9. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though, here's faith right here. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. That's faith. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. That's faith. It's the ability to trust in an invisible God. It's an ability to love a Jesus you've never seen. And remember what Jesus said to Thomas after Thomas doubted and he put his finger through his nail-pierced hand? He said, Thomas, you believe because you've seen, but blessed are those who do not see, but they what? They still believe. Blessed are you that have faith even though you don't see what you believe in. That's what faith is. It's an assurance of things 
not yet seen, assurance of things hoped for and a conviction of things not yet seen. And here's what I've seen. Last 40 years of being a Christian, beautiful. When people get faith and they grab on and they get the gift of faith. And by the way, faith is a gift. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. And when you've been given that gift of faith through the gospel of Jesus Christ, it changes people's lives. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And I've seen it over and over and over again when people have the gospel impact in their lives and then they get the gift of faith and they have this abiding faith relationship with Jesus Christ. Their lives change. I remember when I came to Christ 40 years ago, my life just started changing just through having this faith relationship with Jesus Christ. And then I saw other people come to Christ, and their lives changed too. It just, it's still to this day, it turns my crank. Nothing gets me more excited than seeing people come to the gospel, like we saw a couple weeks ago, 13 people received Christ, stood up to receive Christ. That, that, that excites me. But what excites me too is when people receive Christ, and then their lives change. I remember after I came to faith in Christ, uh, went to this Friday night Bible study with Dr. Dave, a Bible college professor, led a bunch of us youth in this Bible study on Friday night. And um, I got word in our Bible study on Friday night that the school terrorist just uh, had a severe car accident. What do I mean by school terrorist? He was the bully of the whole high school I was a part of. His name was Clyde. Clyde was a, Clyde was a, he was a golden gloves blo- uh, boxer that knew how to hit you. And he, would, he had done this to kids in our school that he'd get upset with. He, he, had, he knew how to hit in such a way that it would snap your jaw and would knock you out on the floor unconscious. This is what this guy was known for. If you walked on the hallway and looked at him wrong, he would knock your lights out. And I heard that his, he was coming back from Michigan in his car, and he hit like a 45-degree angle turn, and his brakes went out, and his car flipped 12 times. And he was in a coma at the hospital right in our hometown. Well, we started praying for him as a Bible study, because he was in a coma. They looked like he might die. And then he came out of the coma, and as he was coming out of the coma, some of the girls in our Bible study felt led to go minister to Clyde and share the gospel with him. You know what he did immediately after those girls shared the gospel with him? He got saved. I mean, oh, right on the spot. And I was skeptical. I'm going, I still don't want anything to do with that guy. Right? Then he started coming to our Bible study on Friday night. He wore this big cross, and he was, you know, kind of, he was partly Italian and just had a lot of emotion and stuff. And I'm going, I'm still going to, I'm not going to get anywhere near, I'm not going to even look at this guy. He might still hit me. But then we went on a mission trip, and Clyde signed up for the mission trip to go to Port-au-Prince, Haiti with us, where we were building um, an irrigation system, a water system, so this a Methodist mission can help people uh, with their crops and actually have more food for the city of Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And I remember, I remember getting on this mission trip, and guess who got assigned out of 30 people to be Clyde's roommate? Pastor John! I'm going, you kidding me? And we were roommates, so I got to know this guy a little bit. And I remember 10-hour days of uh, hauling mason bricks up this hill to the irrigation system with Clyde, with his big old cross hanging across his chest, and him singing songs of praise with us in Bible study at nighttime. I'm going, God is in the business of changing lives through faith in Jesus Christ. Amazing. 
And then we started U-Turn for Christ here on our campus. And I, we've seen in the last 20 years, we've seen hundreds of lives through faith in Jesus Christ be changed, radically changed. Hey, listen, half my pastoral staff are U-Turn for Christ graduates that are now pastoral staff because their lives have been changed radically by the gospel of Jesus Christ and their faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, church, any person that puts a true saving faith in Jesus Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, and faith changes people's lives. Can I get an amen, church, from that? Amen. And that's what happened in Colossae. Their lives were being changed by their faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul says, I'm praying for you always since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. That there's actually word on the street of the lives being changed through their faith in Christ Jesus. And notice, also, another result of the gospel, the love which you have for all the saints. Second result of the gospel of life is not only faith, it's love. Love. Remember what Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, you also must love one another. And by this, all men will know you are my disciples, by your steeples, by your Sunday school programs, by whatever. No, what do he say? By this, all men will know you are my disciples, by your love for one another. Next thing that happens through the gospel is not only faith, the gift of faith given and changing your life, but then love, love. I like what John says about this, the apostle of love. He said in 1 John 3, 14, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. And then 1 John 4, 7, 8, the apostle John puts it this way. We used to sing this as a Maranatha song. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. You want to know if you're born again or not? Are you loving God and loving people? What's our mission statement over here? Our purpose. Love God and love people. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says there's, there's, there's only two of the, great, of the 513 laws of the Old Testament. The greatest law, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the first and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love. Love. You know, we're not a normal church here. <laughs> uh, Heidi reminds me all the time, probably we're not a normal church because, John, you're not normal. I'm just not normal. We just don't do things normally. Like most, we don't even have a steeple on this property. We have these buildings, these domes, you know. And I remember, I remember when we, did, we built the very first Jesus Dome over there. And I remember going out in the community and meeting people and then telling them what pe- church I pastor and stuff. And, oh, yeah, yeah, you're the pastor of the Hershey Kiss, aren't you? <laughs> Standard response was always, yeah, yeah, it's real sweet on the inside. Come on in. Come and taste it. You'll see it's sweet. We're just not, our buildings aren't normal. A lot of the ministries doing it for Southern Church aren't normal. I mean, we, we started a U-Turn for Christ program here on our campus, and we have residential care for guys going through drug and alcohol addiction. And I love that we're not normal because we're just do we just we're pushing the envelope on a lot of things. But listen, one of the ways we're not normal too, church. Listen, one of the ways we're not normal is the, the diversity that we have in this church. Do you know that? Most churches, especially here in the South, everybody's like each other, and there's not a lot of diversity. But if you look at our church, we got a lot of diversity. we got people from different races, economic statuses, different places where they're from. I mean, I love the fact that we have a bunch of Yankees and a bunch of Southerners, and we still love each other. 
I love the fact that we have a bunch of Clemson fans and a bunch of Gamecock fans, and the only place I've ever seen Clemson fans and Gamecock fans love each other is here at Calvary Chapel. Amen, I heard. Amen. We are not going to be a house divided. And I, I love the fact that even in our U-turn for Christ, we got guys bunking together where one guy is on the top bunk is from somewhere in New Jersey, and the guy in the bottom bunk is maybe from Aiken, South Carolina, and they still love each other. Because that's the way it's supposed to be, isn't it? It doesn't matter our background, our diversity, our economic standing. Hey, all are one in Christ Jesus, male or female, slave or, or free, Jew or Gentile, Galatians 3.28 says we're all one in Christ Jesus. And we're supposed to love each other. We're not normal either because a lot of churches, what, what, as soon as the preacher goes past 20 minutes, people are doing like that with their watch. Come on now, come on now, come on now. I don't see any of you doing that. But then I also see in our church, people hang out here afterwards. I'm, I'm not the last person on the property. Most pastors are the last people to leave. I, I, last Wednesday night, I was leaving after about 20 minutes after the service, and there's still 50, 60, 70 people eating ice cream out on the patio and just hanging out. Why? Why do people, don't people have places to go and people to see and things to do? Yeah, we're all busy, but we want to be together, don't we? Why? Because we love each other. Again, we're family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, and one of the chief characteristics of the gospel in any person's life is you get this supernatural agape love poured into your life, and you love others because God loves you, and there's love. How do you know if you're a Christian? The love of God. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God, for God is love. Love. So let me tell you something. I might be stepping on some stones here, but listen, listen, church, listen. We're family. And one of the ways we love each other is we don't keep a record of wrongs suffered. 1 Corinthians 13. One of the chief characteristics of love is forgiveness. And so if you're holding a grudge against a brother and sister in Christ, get over it. Forgive them as God has forgiven you because that's a part of loving people is you don't, don't keep a record of wrongs suffers and you love other people whether they've hurt you or not, get over it. What did Jesus teach us to pray? Father, forgive us our debts as we what? We forgive our debtors, right? Or forgive us our trespasses, we forgive those who trespass against us. Whatever version you want to go with. Forgiveness. Love. Let's love each other, you know? The New Testament church, they were known for their love for one another. Let's be known at Calvary Chapel for our love for one another. That's what happened when Calvary Chapel started, by the way. Had all the diversity of hippies coming in and young people getting saved and uh, you know, established people, people that were business people loving hippies. Wow, how'd that happen? Because there was love there. Love. Love is the second characteristic of the gospel working in your life. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Okay, so faith, what's the second thing the gospel does? Love. Now, what's the third thing the gospel does in our lives? Hope. Similar to what Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians 13. He said, now, abide a faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And when the gospel works in our lives, it not only gives us faith, it not only gives us love, but also the gospel working in our lives will produce hope. Now, what's hope? Hope, <laughs> well, for me, hope sometimes is the telemarketer who's calling me and saying, is this Mr. Hope? I'm happy. And as soon as I hear, is this Mr. Hope? Ah, no, it's not. Bam. 
because I'm not Mr. Hope, I'm Mr. Hoppy. But, but that's, that's just when I think of hope. I think of telemarketers calling me, and I know it's telemarketers, and I hang up on them. But anyways, what's hope? What is hope? What's the definition of hope? Expectation of coming good. It's an anticipation that the best is yet to come. And if anybody should have hope in a hopeless world, it's Christians. Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in us is a hope of glory. Peter put it this way in, in his epistle. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Why should we have hope in a cursed world? Because the best is yet to come. Heaven. Christ in us. Hope of glory, man. Not only that, we're going to a place that Jesus called paradise. A place that he described in Revelation 21 as being a place where there's no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. A place where God's going to wipe away every tear. A place where God's going to make all things new, including us. A place where, according to 1 Corinthians 15, our mortal bodies will become immortal, our perishable bodies will become imperishable. We'll all have 30-year-old bodies again for the rest of eternity. I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. But we have the hope also of the place where the presence of God is going to be streaming into our lives like a river. A place where there's going to be no more sin. A place where we're going to be rendezvoused with fellow believers that have died before us. A place, I'm looking for this, a place where there's going to be no more death. No more people just absentee and holes in our lives because they're gone. Heaven. I was reading this week about POWs from Vietnam. It was interesting to me because they said the POWs that did the best in Vietnam were the ones that kept their hope alive. And uh, Vietnam POWs, I don't know if you know this, they went through torture, brutality, starvation. I mean, these POW camps in Vietnam were horrible. Some of the POWs in the Vietnam, uh, uh, POWs in the prisoner camps, some of them got tortured to the point that they were pulling their fingernails out. I had one toenail that I busted in it, I, and it was hurt like crazy. I can't imagine someone just pulling my fingernails out as a part of the torture of being there. But you know what these POWs did that made it through that? The ones that did the best? They kept a picture, oftentimes in their pocket or their wallet, if they still had their wallet, they kept a picture of their family members, their wife, their kids. And they kept that picture, and they looked at the picture every day. And they said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see my wife again. And they kept that hope alive. And they kept the picture in front of, the, of their kids and said, I'm going I'm to be a dad to these kids again. I believe this. And they kept their hope alive. I think as Christians, we should keep a picture of heaven in front of us. A picture of what the scripture describes as the glory of heaven. We should keep that in our minds and focus on it on a daily basis. This is our future. Christ in us. It's a hope of glory. Keep that picture in mind. Hey, this is as bad as it's going to get. If you're a Christian, absent from the body, present with the Lord, we're going to a place that's glory that Jesus again called paradise. And that hope, that hope should be a part of the gospel in our lives. Amen? Amen. Amen. After hope, then it goes on in Colossians chapter 1. After it says hope, 
laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world, verse 6, and is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and you understood the grace of God and truth. Hey, I want you to see something here. It's saying that the gospel had now gone, this is 32 years after the cross, after Jesus' death on the cross, the gospel had now gone to the whole world. That's amazing, church. That's without planes, trains, or automobiles. That's without the internet, Facebook, or Twitter. That's without the ability to just, you know, get in a plane and go somewhere thousands of miles. The, the, the church of Jesus Christ, just through their feet and through ships, brought the entire gospel to the whole world. Within 32 years, the whole Roman Empire had been impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the fruit was continuing to increase. How? By the Holy Spirit. Jesus had told them, Acts 1-8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. Power. And church, we'd, the greatest need in the church for us to have fruit that's increasing and reaching the whole known world today, the greatest need we have as a church today of Jesus Christ is to have that Holy Spirit power in our lives too. It's not by our might, nor by our power that we can do anything. It's by God's Spirit. And we need to pray for one more revival before the rapture. We need to pray. And I pray, I, my heart is, Lord, rapture me as soon as you can. But let, before you do that, let's get on with it. And let's have one more great revival. You know, Calvary Chapel was born in revival. Calvary Chapel was started with 25 people in Costa Mesa, California. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit, like winds of refreshing, blew through that area. And literally, Tens of thousands, if not more, people have been saved through Calvary Chapel because of the power of the Holy Spirit that blew through the church at that time. And I say, Lord, let's, let's, one more time. And I, not only do I say, let's start right here. Let the fire start right here. Dale Moody, before he'd go up and preach, oftentimes the great evangelist from the 1800s, he prayed, first of all, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, speak through me. But then he also prayed, Holy Spirit, set me on fire and let other people come and watch me burn. That's my hope for us as a church, that we just get on fire by the Holy Spirit. We could be those witnesses that God's called us to be. Amen, church? Amen. So the next result, the next result, the next result of the gospel is fruit. Look, go back to our verses there on fruit. Notice after he says the whole world has been reached, but he says this. He said, he said the fruit is increasing even as it has been doing since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. Fruit increasing. Now, there's two kinds of fruit. There's internal fruit and there's external fruit. Internal fruit is the fruit of the Spirit in our personal lives. We're told in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And those that walk by the Spirit have these things going on in their personal lives. But there's a second kind of fruit, and that's the fruit externally. And here's what happens. You start having this faith relationship with Jesus Christ, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what happens. Is you start changing to become more like Christ, and the word of God starts impacting your life. And then, not only do you start changing to be more like Christ, you start reproducing yourselves and multiplying. We have a saying in Calvary Chapel that goes way back. Healthy sheep, bah, healthy sheep, reproduce other sheep. And as you get in God's word, God's word starts changing. Your faith starts growing you. You'll change internally, but then you'll start externally producing fruit. 
You start multiplying yourself. And I've seen it. I've seen it not only here. I was, in, I was exposed to Calvary Chapel in the 1980s when I pastored our first church in North County, San Diego. And I wasn't Calvary Chapel yet. I was just trying to learn how to do ministry. And then I got in this prayer group with some of these other Calvary Chapel pastors. They started discipling me. And then I started seeing God doing incredible things through Calvary Chapels. It was amazing. We had four Calvary Chapels in Oceanside, California, where I was pastoring at the time, and they all just started exploding. The fruit. I mean, they didn't, they didn't just become hundreds of people. They, some of these Calvary Chapels in the town I was pastoring were thousands of people. Why? Because they got into God's Word. God's Word started impacting them and growing them spiritually, and then they started reproducing. That's how it's supposed to work. It's not supposed to be, we're not supposed to grow as a church through Madison Avenue techniques. We're supposed to grow as people of faith that are growing in our faith and then passing on our faith to other people. Because Matthew 5, 16 says, Jesus speaking, let your light shine in such a way that others may see your good works. And then they too may start glorifying your Father in heaven. Fruit. Fruit. We're supposed to be fruit-producing Christians. And that should happen just naturally through the gospel impacting our lives and our faith growing. Then we start reproducing ourselves. What, what's our theme for this year? Right there. 2019, right there on this side, 2019. What's our theme? Each one? Reach one. That's fruit. So let's do it, church. So let's, let's make it this a year that we are bearing fruit, not only internally, but externally. Let's see what God will do with that. Just as in, the, in Colossae, let's be like Colossae. Let's, let's, let's see the fruit increasing. And you know what? That's very biblical because Acts chapter 2 says, after they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to uh, prayer and fellowship and the breaking of bread, it says at the end of that chapter, verse 47, it says, and day by day God was adding to their number those who were being saved. That's a healthy church, a fruit-bearing church. And day by day we're going to see people added to our number, those who are being saved. That's what it's all about. Now, now it goes on. Last thing, last result of the gospel, verse 6, is the fruit is increasing, even as it has been doing, in you also since the day you heard of it and you understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learn it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, they learned it because Epaphras started the church there in Colossae, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he's also informed us uh, Paphras now is with Paul, informing uh, Paul, uh, Paul of their love in the Spirit. Hey, the last thing, last thing on our list of the gospel, impacting lives in Colossae, was they understood the grace of God in truth. I remember very well being lost. I remember very well having conversations with the people that were witnessing to me about the grace of God and me basically saying, well, that's, that's not right. I've got to do things to be saved. I gotta be a good person. I gotta follow the Ten Commandments. If I'm really gonna get saved, I gotta do this. And they kept telling me, no, no, no. For by grace you're saved through faith. That not a result of the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one's supposed. 